Well, we return to Luke 17 and Jesus' discussion of the second coming. And the whole theme of this section is on the judgment of the second coming. So it's pretty grim. Thankfully, in the weeks to come, Lord willing, when we get to chapter 21, we'll be able to look at some things that aren't quite as scary. But right now, Jesus is talking about some pretty scary things. If you've been a Christian very long, you know that uh, there are a lot of different views about prophecy and and different systems of understanding the end times. And if you've read books, you could be really confused because the, the, the interpretations can be so radically different that you just think, well, how could if these guys are scholars and they disagree, then how could I ever find out what it means? And maybe you have experienced that, but. Really, what you need to understand is, is that these different systems are the result of different methods of interpreting the Bible. And so once you have a certain method of interpreting the Bible, it gives birth to these different systems. So really, the disagreement is not with the interpretation, but in how to study portions of prophecy in the Bible. Now, these different methods uh, produce have produced three primary views of understanding the second coming of Christ and his kingdom. And I just want to survey these views this morning because uh, we're talking about the second coming and we're going to be talking about it. And, you know, you may have read something or you may look stuff up on the Internet and you may realize, well, that's that, that doesn't sound like anything like what Pastor Jack said. And so this will give you kind of a little overview of what we're talking about. The first uh, popular view is called post-millennialism. Now, millennium means thousand, a thousand. So post means after, after the thousand is really what it means. So if you are a post millennialist, you believe that Christ will return after his kingdom. And you may be thinking, well, how does that work? Well, it works like this. You you basically have to believe that most of the prophecy in the new Testament has already been fulfilled. The book of Revelation, almost everything has been fulfilled. The tribulation happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. The thousand years of Revelation 20 is not a thousand years. It's just a figure of speech to describe a long period of time. And that what is going to happen is, is that over the course of time, things are going to get better and better. Christians, through their involvement in politics and media and education or whatever, slowly begin to change the world. So the world gets transformed by Christianity, becomes more and more wonderful until we reach this utopian state and establish the kingdom. And once it continues on for a while as kind of this, this really primo place to live, you know, like the Jetsons, I guess, I don't know, um, you know, where, where everything's wonderful, then Jesus comes back and he receives the kingdom after it's been established. So it's post millennial after the thousand years, though they don't believe the thousand years is literally a thousand years after a long time of this utopian state. The second more popular view, um, which you will find, and I have it in a lot of my commentaries, is called ah millennialism. Now, if ah, if you study, is usually a negator. That means it, it means no or not. It means no 
millennium, no thousand years. They believe there will be no thousand years. So when the Bible says there'll be a thousand years, it doesn't mean that the thousand years are nothing more than a figure of speech to describe an undefined period of time that started with Jesus's resurrection and continues on until his second coming, that there is a spiritual reign of Christ right now, that Satan is bound by the preaching of the gospel and that the the church is now in this age of Christ's rule as he rules and reigns through believers, through the word of God, um, which, of course, we also believe, but we believe there will be a literal kingdom to come, too. So all millennials teach that that Jesus is ruling right now and uh, and how they see it is at any moment, just like we believe um, Christ could come back. In glory, and when he does, all the things that we kind of have a little spread out—the um, rapture, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, the bema seat judgment, the great white throne judgment—all of those things happen in rather near or close proximity, right after Jesus comes. So that is the amillennial system. Our, what we believe, our teaching position at Calvary Bible Church is pre-millennialism. And that means pre before the thousand years, Jesus comes back before and then establishes a kingdom that will last as revelation says a thousand years. Now, when you begin to look at differences and you ask yourself, well, why is this person say it's after this person says before, and this person says it's not even there again, it's how you understand prophecy. Everybody agrees that there's figurative language in the prophecy portions of the Bible, that there's metaphor in the prophecy portions of the Bible, and that there's symbolic language. But um, the amillennial and postmillennial camps believe kind of as a, a general rule that when you approach prophecy, you should kind of prepare yourself to spiritualize the text. So there's this presupposition that it needs to be spiritualized. Um, they will agree that if you take a more literal approach, a historical, grammatical, literal approach to understanding prophecy, you will arrive at our position or something close to it. Now, let me just give you an example of of um, of what we feel is the correct way, just so you can kind of understand prophecy. Because I know, you know, if you start reading Revelation or something, you might think, wow, we believe that if the literal sense makes sense, then you don't seek another sense. I mean, if the literal sense makes sense, then why try to find some secret meaning? God doesn't write the Bible to try and trick us. This is his revelation, not his mystery novel. You know, granted, there are some things that God says, I am going to hide this until the end times. He tells that to Daniel. You know, yeah, there are a few things, but it's all to be clear to us so that we can know the truth. So, um, for instance, when Jesus says, I am the door to the sheepfold, we instantly, because we're, we're smart, would think to ourselves, he's not really a slab of wood. That's obviously a metaphor, right? I mean, Jesus is not a slab of wood. However, if we want to understand what Jesus meant by the phrase, I am the door, we would first say, what is a door and what is it used for? And a door is used to pass through from one place to another, one room to another, one area to another, right? Jesus being the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the father, but what? Through him. So in that way, 
the literal meaning of the door helps us understand something spiritual about Christ. But let's just say you get to Revelation chapter 11 and you discover that there it talks about two witnesses, two witnesses. These men preach the gospel. They do miracles like Elijah and Moses. They are killed and three and a half days later they rise from the dead. Now we would say that they're two witnesses, prophets, who do the miracles of Elijah and Moses are killed and three and a half days later rise from the dead. Because that's what it says, and it makes perfectly good sense. However, if you come to the text thinking, you know, this is we got to spiritualize this, then that's when you get these divergent interpretations, and you can imagine why. The problem we have with that is, is a lot of times when you come to the text like that, and you say, well, it's metaphor, that's fine. We see metaphor. But whenever you say something's metaphor or figurative, It's figurative of something like Jesus. The door represents Jesus. The literal thing teaches something about the spiritual thing. So if you say the door is metaphorical, you have to say metaphorical of what? It's metaphorical of something, not nothing. You don't just get to use the phrase it's metaphorical to vaporize the text and make it go away because you don't want to deal with the details. And so what happens a lot of times is when you read these other commentaries, they'll take a big chunk of prophecy with all these details and say, well, it's just generally metaphor of the church or Israel or whatever. And, and you say, well, what about the details? It says there were two witnesses. So what does the two mean? It says they prophesy. What is that metaphorical of? It says they do it for 1260 days. What does that mean? It says they're clothed in sackcloth. What does that mean? You see, that's our problem. You can't just make that go away because you want to just take the whole lump thing and just kind of say it represents something vague. No, words mean something. Every word of God means something. And so that is why we have a problem because those other approaches don't deal with all of the of the details. We're fine with them saying it's metaphor as long as there's a reason in the text, but we have a problem when it's just a word used to not deal with the text. Secondly, if you reject the literal meaning of the text, then all of a sudden your objectivity of what the text says and means is lost. For instance, if I were to, you know, take this section over here and uh, I were to say, okay, this is what I want you to do. Don't talk to each other. I want you to write down the two witnesses Aren't two men, two prophets who, who preach the gospel or killed and drive? Okay. What I want you to do is I want you to tell me what the two means, what the prophecy means, what the men are, what the 1260 days is, and what it means to be clothed in sackcloth and ashes, because it doesn't mean that. Now, what would happen? I would have as many interpretations as I do people in this section. Why? Because the interpretation now isn't being driven by the text and its context. It's being driven by what? The imagination of the interpreter. And that's the problem. That's why when you go through, people say, well, you know, if you look at commentaries, they'll say, well, it's Israel. It's the church. It's the church under persecution. It's the witness of the gospel through the church. It's the witness of the gospel through the church in Israel. And and then you say, well, what about these details? What does 1260 mean? Well, that, that's, it's metaphorical. 
What about sackcloth? What about this? What about this? And then they, they don't deal with that. The text makes perfectly good sense to just take it as it is. And then you don't have to spiritualize anything. There will be a literal tribulation and literal two men who prophesy, do miracles like Elijah and Moses, are killed and three and a half days later rise from the dead. It makes perfectly good sense to just take it that way. This doesn't mean prophecy then should all be taken this way. But again, if you have that general approach, then you will arrive at what Calvary Bible Church's position is, and that is dispensational premillennialism. Now, I hate to throw all these things. Dispensation just means time periods. There are some, and those who are in the the amillennial camp, the postmillennial camp, or what they call covenant in their theology. And what they like to do is divide the Bible up into different covenants. They'll see like the covenant God made with Adam, the covenant God made with Noah, the covenant God made with, with Moses, the covenant, the new covenant. You see these covenants and so you can break up the Bible that way and everybody sees covenants and everybody sees dispensations that these people, the covenant theologians like to see the covenants in the Bible and actually they make up some that aren't explicitly stated. And then they use that as a framework for understanding a a lot of different things, including the end times. Dispensationalists see time periods and and they will put, they say, well, it's kind of like before the fall, after the fall, before the flood, after the flood, you know, before the law, after the law. You see these these different time periods where God is working in different ways. Um, You know, I, I see covenants and I see dispensations. I'm fine with them both. Um, and so if somebody asked me if I'm a dispensational premillennial, I would probably say yes, just because I understand what they mean. But, um, I think covenants are great things and I see them in the Bible, except those ones that aren't explicitly stated. The good part is, is if you come to all this and I tell you all this, because we go through prophecy now and in a couple chapters, um, there's a lot of different systems that can be very confusing. And I just want you to know you can get to heaven, believing any system and that's good. And know this, after it happens, everybody's going to have the same view. <laughs> and that's good too. That's good too. It, it, if you have the wrong view, it's not going to keep you from being saved. And so that's great. So as this morning, as we return to Jesus' discussion, he's been asked by the Pharisees in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, when the kingdom's going to come and why they ask him that. Well, they ask him that because... Since John the Baptist came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus came saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he sent the apostles out and they've been saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Pharisees are going, so when is it? Because they know the Old Testament scriptures and they're looking for these incredible signs in the heaven that are going to, to convince them that Jesus is telling the truth. They don't see any signs, and so they say, you keep saying it's at hand, but we don't see the signs in the heaven. Well, of course, they couldn't see, they didn't understand the difference between the first coming and the second coming. They were, they were talking about the second coming. But Jesus says, listen, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's right before you. It's right here, right now. I am the king. These are my followers. Open your eyes. There's not going to be any signs to be observed for the first coming in the heavens because I'm right here before you. And he knew, though, that they were talking about the second coming, but he purposely talked about his first coming as a judgment upon them because of their hardness of hearts and because they would not believe. But after having told them 
Yes, that's going to happen. Um, but uh, it's not going to happen like you think because the kingdom of God is in your midst and they're thinking, what are you talking about? Man, you've lost your head. There's no signs. You aren't overthrowing Rome. You are a lunatic. Then he turns to his disciples and says, but I'll tell you about what they wanted to know. And he begins to tell them that there's going to be some days in their, in their time period where they're going to long to see the days of the Son of Man, but they're not going to see them because it's not going to be for their generation, but a future generation. And he says, I just want you to know that this generation are going to be longing for Christ and his appearing. But before that's going to happen, I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to be rejected. I'm going to have to do what I've come to do for my first coming. And then once I've done what I've come to do, make atonement for sin at my first coming, then I will send it to heaven and then I'm going to come back later and do the signs in the heaven and you'll know it's the second coming. But he then decides to go into a little bit more detail about what it's going to be like. You know, everybody wants to know when's Christ coming back? When's Christ coming back? And, you know, you could be one of those, uh, you know, newspaper Christians where you're looking at the paper and got your Bible and the newspaper and you're trying to compare. And, you know, you can begin to see a lot of things in there that maybe you shouldn't see. But let's look at the text. Jesus is now going to give us some more information about what it will be like when the days of the Son of Man begin. When Jesus begins to intervene and physically take back the world and establish his kingdom, what's it going to be like? Look at Luke 17, verse 26, and follow along as I read. He says this, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So from this text, you're going to get, we get two examples of what the world will be like when Jesus or the days of the Son of Man begin. And this should really strike great fear in anybody who doesn't know Christ. That judgment is approaching and they need to flee from the wrath to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do know Christ, it should make you pretty excited. Because our days match up with the days mentioned in this text. So let's look at... First, Jesus will return during times like Noah's. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah. Stop there. And you're going to have to keep your finger or piece of paper in our text because we're going to be moving around. Let's go to Genesis 6 and remind ourselves how it just happened to happen in the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 6, which tells us why God brought a flood upon the earth at that time. Genesis chapter 6 tells us what happened. And let's just look at these first couple verses in chapter 6 of Genesis, where the text reads, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, 
And the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. The sons of God usually refers to angels, um, uh, fallen angels or demons, as I believe it does here. And it says, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. You may think, wait a second, Jack. Wait a second. I mean, these fallen angels took wives for themselves? I thought Jesus said angels don't marry, nor are they given in marriage. Well, holy angels aren't married, nor are given in marriage. These are demons. These are rebellious ones. And uh, there's a good reason to believe that these fallen angels did indeed take wives. Uh, Whether it was through possession or whatever, there's no details given. But look at verse 3. Then the Lord said... My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those who were mighty men who are of old men of renown. So here we have the union of fallen angels. And you're thinking, well, I don't know about that. Just hang on. The fallen angels with women who produced mighty men, men of renown. Now, why would Satan do this? Why would these demons do this? Well, if they could corrupt the human race, they could render the human race unredeemable by Christ. It's a pretty wicked plan. And you say, so so these demons came down and either possessed men or did something, took wives. And what were those people like? Well, they were mighty Men of renown, but look at verse 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the outcome of this union of the daughters of men and the sons of God is that there was an exceedingly wicked society. It was then that God was moved to judge the world with a flood in order to wipe out everybody but Noah and the few that were with him. Now turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Here Peter references um, this same kind of situation. He does it in a little vague way, but he gives us a little bit more information and starts making us wonder... um, what all this means, but he begins to fill in some holes that help us understand a few things. He gives us a little divine commentary. Look at Second Peter chapter two, verse four, where Peter writes, saying, "For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, now we know that angels sinned." And you say, "Well, didn't all the demons sin? They were all angels who sinned." Yes, but notice these kind. But cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. These angels were extra wicked angels, and they've been incarcerated. And literally, the text says, "Into Tartarus." They've been incarcerated there, waiting for the day of judgment. So whatever they did, I mean, being a demon and rebelling against God is bad. But being a demon and rebelling to such a degree that God would send you into a pit reserved for judgment is obviously worse. 
Then he says in verse 5, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Notice he says, and here, it's the same sentence, and he seems to connect the sin of these angels with the flood of Noah's time. Now you may say, but Jack, he's probably just given a couple examples. I mean, we, we don't, you know... We don't have to say here, is he, that, that it specifically is referring to, to Noah. Maybe this is angels who sinned and, let me give you another example, the flood. And that's true. He goes on to say in verse 6, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing the ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So the people of Sodom were living ungodly lives. And if he rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, which tells us the sin of Sodom was a sensual immorality. For by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Like these angels who have been stuffed into pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And like the people of Sodom who in sensuality tormented righteous lot. Verse 10. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So you can say, well, obviously in verse 10, indulging in the corrupt desires of the flesh is mentioned. It's an allusion to gross immorality. And you say, well, okay, well, we'll grant you that. And yes, we'll grant you the angels sinned. And granted, it could have been in the days of Noah, but it doesn't specifically say it was in the days of Noah. And it doesn't really say how they sinned. And so it's, yeah, we're not convinced yet. And that's fine. That's fine. And, and if that's all there was, then we would just say, yeah, we can't be certain. But Turn over to the book of Jude, which is a couple books to the right. First John, second John, third John and Jude, the little tiny book right before the book of Revelation, where we find out some more information that puts all the pieces together of what happened in Genesis. Jude, starting in verse six, says, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. So here Angels are to live in the spirit world. They left the spirit world, you know, like um, Satan left the spirit world and entered into the serpent to deceive Eve. They left the spirit world. They abandoned their proper abode, the spiritual domain. They did not keep that domain, but abandoned it. He has kept these fallen angels who did not keep their proper abode in eternal bonds under the darkness of the ju- for the judgment of the great day, which is exactly what Peter said. The texts are very similar. So now we know that those angels left the spirit world and they did something, which we're going to find out what that is in a minute. They did something and therefore God incarcerated them awaiting their own judgment. Verse 7, just as, referring to the way the angels who abandoned their proper abode and sin, just as, just like those angels who abandoned their proper abode, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So just as the angels left their proper abode and went after strange flesh, the text literally says flesh of a different kind, and 
are being preserved for judgment. So Sodom, the sin there was of the same kind where men went after strange flesh. It was rife with homosexuality. And not only that, they went after the angels who came there to rescue Lot. And then, of course, fire destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And they are an example of what will happen to these spirits who are now incarcerated. Now, if you put Genesis 6 and 2 Peter 2 and Jude together, this is what you get. You have fallen angels in the days of Noah who abandoned the spirit world, went after strange flesh, flesh of a different kind, flesh not like their own, engaging in gross immorality, and therefore they're judged. He says, in the same way as these. This is what I think is meant by the sons of God took the daughters of men as wives. So we need to realize there are degrees of immorality, right? There are degrees of immorality and it kind of goes like this. If you're just sitting somewhere by yourself, you're not thinking of anybody in particular, but you're just lusting in your mind. That is immorality of a more minor kind. It's bad, but it's immorality of a minor kind. But if you take action upon your lust and you look at people and or pictures, pornography, things like that, and you begin to lust in that way, now you've taken action and that's immorality of a greater kind still. If you involve somebody else who isn't married and you engage in some sort of immorality, then you've committed immorality of a worst kind still because now you sin against your your own body their body and the lord and if they get married their future spouse then if you commit adultery it's worse still because now you sin against your body their body your spouse their spouse the lord and now you've compounded it so adultery is worse still And finally, the worst kind is homosexuality because it does all the other things and perverts or twists God's intended role for men and women, which is what happened in Sodom, which is what happened when the sons of God cohabitated with the daughters of men. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, saying, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And if you read in the text back up when it says he gave them over it's the third time he gave them over what happens is when a society begins to reject god and they don't want to submit to god and they don't want to believe in christ and they don't want to follow his word and they don't want to hear about god they want to just live without god apart from god to be atheistic or worship idols or whatever god begins to give them over and it leads to immorality then to greater forms of immorality and ends with gross immorality culminating in judgment. So a society full of gross immorality is a society that is ripe for judgment. Gross immorality is a sign that judgment is sure to come. All right, let's turn back to Luke chapter 17, verse 26. Now that we have that and we kind of understand the background, we can look at our text and understand a little bit better about what Jesus is saying. He's just saying it'll be like the days of of Noah 
He says, so it will be in the middle of the verse 26 of Luke 17. So it will be also in the days of the son of man. You want to know what Jesus is going to be like when the, the days of the son of man come look for a society that is saturated in immorality that is given over to every degree of immorality. And when the world becomes like that, then you know they're ripe for judgment. That's what Jesus says. And I think we all know that this is what our world is like today. If you look at verses, verse 27, it goes on to say they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were, they were being given in marriage. You know, Jesus is, remember, comparing Noah's day of gross immorality with the future days on earth when the days of the Son of Man begin. There's going to be this incredible immorality like it was in Noah's days. And though Noah was preaching to them, Peter describes him as a preacher of righteousness, though he was preaching to them, though he was building a, you know, a giant ark almost as big as the Queen Mary. I mean, you know, it was hard to miss as a big wooden billboard. Judgment is coming. They would not hear it. They mocked him. They would not get in. And they were just eating and they were drinking. You know, they were sitting out in their patio, living their immoral lifestyles, engaging in their business, giving their daughters away, taking wives, you know. Doing the normal routine of life as this crazy man was building this ark, totally rejecting him as a lunatic. And you can imagine, you know, he's it's a fanatic. He believes in things that have never been scientifically verified. We've never seen a flood before. We've never seen it rain before. Surely this Noah guy is out of his mind. These things could never happen. So they continued living in their immoral lives and look in the middle of verse 27 until the day that Noah entered the ark. Stop there. What happened? The animals were already in there. Noah entered the ark. God closed up the ark. And then what happened? All of a sudden it began to rain and people thought, hey, what is this? This is what the lunatic said would happen. And the floodgates of the earth began to burst forth torrents of water and it began to just dump in this deluge. They had never seen it rain, but it did. They had no scientific proof that it could rain, but it did. They had no historical example of it raining, but it did. Because it was a miracle. It was a divine judgment. It was God breaking into time and space, judging his creation. And though they had never seen it happen before, it happened just as Noah said it would happen. Look at the end of verse 27. The flood came and destroyed them all. It wiped out everybody outside the ark, every animal, every person. So all you have to do is to find out about the days of the son of man is look for uh, a world where immorality is escalated until there's just every form of immorality in every degree. And then you'll know as people continue their normal routines of life, they're ripe for judgment. Secondly, Jesus will return during times like Lot's. Turn back to Genesis chapter 18 so I can remind you of what Lot's time was like. Genesis chapter 18. Remember, Lot was the nephew of Abraham. And uh, he decided, since Abraham was gracious enough, to give him the option of settling in the plain. That is, he was down in the Jordan Rift, down there by the Dead Sea which before this judgment came upon that area must have been a pretty nice place. And so in in Genesis 18, 
the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, before he became a man, appears to Abraham and Sarah, along with two other angels. And they eat with them, and then they walk over to the rim of the canyon, or they're overlooking, they're, they can look, they're looking down into the Jordan Rift, and there they see into the Jordan Rift, and, and the areas behind there, all the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities of the plain. So there's a lot of them, not just two, there's a lot of them, they're down there. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord, says to the other two angels, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do to those cities down there? And the other angels don't answer because they don't need to. They know that Jesus knows everything already, so they don't need to give him any advice. And then the angel of the Lord turns to Abraham in verse 20 of Chapter 18 says, and the Lord said, and the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. And there's like a whole nother sermon just crying out here. I like it that though God knows everything, he still uses finite creatures. He still sends the angels down there to check it out. He knows, but he wants them to know. And he wants to give them a chance to participate in his plan. That's a whole other sermon. All right. But it's pretty fascinating. So as they're standing there and, and Abraham finds out that the Lord's going to wipe out. I mean, he, Lot lives down there. His nephew lives down there and his family lives down there. And he doesn't want to see them judged. So he begins to have this little like dialogue with the Lord about, you know, I mean, it's not good to wipe out the the righteous with the wicked. I mean, what if, what if there was like 50 people down in those cities? Would you spare them? And the Lord says, yeah. And he says, well, what about 45? Yeah. What about 30? Yeah. What about 20? Yeah. What about 10? Yeah. You mean to tell me God would spare all of those wicked cities if there were like 10 grains of salt sprinkled among them? Yeah. But there wasn't. There wasn't. And this is what we read in Genesis 19, starting in verse 4. The angels go down. They meet up with Lot. He has them come into their house. And we read, starting in verse 4, But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relationships with a man. Please uh, let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien already is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the door. What is really amazing about this is these men are so consumed with lust twisted lust that even after they're struck with blindness they're still groping for the door so they can get to the angels is that twisted or what 
And the whole idea of Lot, he is so terrified. He knows they're angels and he's thinking, man, what do I do to protect these angels? They didn't need protecting. And it was a pretty lame idea to throw your daughters out there at them. But, you know, what do you do when you have angels in your house and you're trying to take care of them? Well, they took care of themselves, struck everybody with blindness. Driven by lust, they kept looking for the door. Now, let's go back to Luke chapter 17, verse 28. Luke 17, verse 28. Now that we reminded ourselves about that terrible incident. Luke 17, verse 28. Jesus says, continuing on, he's just talked about Noah. He says, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. Jesus is now giving the second comparison of what it'll be like in the days of the Son of Man. When the days of the Son of Man begin, it will be just like it was in Lot's day. Lot was surrounded by immorality, homosexuality. We read earlier in 2 Peter 2, 8, For by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So Jesus, when he returns, there's going to be this rampant, gross immorality in the world. Just like it is today. Look at the middle of verse 28. And they were eating and they were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planning. They were building. You know, they're down there having a cup of coffee. The sword of God's judgment is hanging over their head. And they're fine. They're fine looking at pornography. They're fine shacking up with their girlfriend. They're fine committing adultery. They're fine committing homosexual acts. They're fine with all those things. They aren't worried about judgment. You've got to be kidding to me. Are you jesting? Genesis 19 verse 14 describes what happened the next day after the angels struck all those people blind. They eventually crawled back to wherever. I don't know if their sight came back or what happened. But it says, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said to them, Get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. You're kidding, right? You're kidding. Does that sound familiar to you? You start talking to people about Christ and you know what? Um, There's a heaven, there's a hell. Christ is going to come back and then they get that little quirky smile on their face like, when are you going to say you're kidding? When are you going to say, I'm just kidding? And you're serious and you keep talking to them and they look at you like, you actually believe this is true? What kind of church do you go to anyways? You go to those Bible churches? I mean, come on, you, you are three fries short of a happy meal, man. You're broken. <laughs> so it was in the days of Lot, verse 29. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, stopped there. Lot was able to convince his wife and two daughters to flee. And his wife and two daughters then bolted. They ran like two little, like two little sp- Specks following two other little specks as they fled to Zoar. All their friends, all their family, the sons-in-laws, their possessions, everything they were familiar with, they left it behind. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain continued living immoral lives. They were, the text says, eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building, oblivious to the fact that judgment was going to come upon them, that they would not live to see one more day. They sinned with no fear of God. They loved their sin, the world, and the, their wicked life without God. Look at the end of verse 29. And as the people, the, all the cities in the plain went on in their routine of immoral life, 
It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Women, children, men, grandparents, animals, all their stuff destroyed. Both Noah and Lot gave warning. Both societies were characterized by gross immorality. Both societies were going on with the routines of life, having no fear of God. Both Noah and Lot were preserved by God. Noah, by being taken through the judgment after having gotten into the ark, Lot, by being removed from the judgment. Then judgment came and killed every single person. That This is just so sobering to, to to look at what jesus says it's going to be like noah's time and it's going to be like lot's time and we all know it's our time and that if christ came back now how many billions of people would be executed and how frustrating it is to try and talk to people and you think, okay, all right, Lord, I'm going to, when my waitress comes back, I'm just going to mention God and see what she does. And, and you say, hey, do you go to church? Not interested. Okay. You're sitting at lunch with that person. You think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up Christ and share the gospel and drop the bomb on them. And you say, hey. So uh, what do you think about heaven and hell? And you got to be kidding, right? And they think you appear to be jesting to them. We need to pray harder. We need to tell, tell people about Christ. We need to invest in eternity because this world is ripe for judgment now. And if it's as bad as it is now, what's it going to be like in five years, 10 years, 20 years? If the Lord tarries, you imagine what the world is going to be like in 20 years. It's scary. Like you don't even want to have kids and have them raised up and that scary. Turn to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation 18. This describes what the world is going to be like. Uh, there is this uh, city called Babylon. And when you... When you study the different texts, it seems like a literal city in a literal place with near the water where merchants come in. It also seems like that which represents just um, wickedness. It's kind of a, a, a uh, just a, an example of what the world is going to be like then. But look at Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison in every unclean spirit and the prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And I was just, I always think of Dubai when I think of this by the, by the sea full of richness and luxury and corruption you know, whether that's it or not, I just think about it. Anyways, it's just, it's just the personification of wickedness and then God brings judgment down and it's wiped out in an hour. Again, rampant immorality, sensuality, and then judgment. 
J.C. Ryle commenting on this text says, it is hard to imagine a passage of scripture which more completely overthrows the common ideas which prevail among men about Christ's return. The world will not be converted when Jesus comes again. The earth will not be full of the knowledge of the Lord. The reign of peace will not have been established. The millennium will not have begun. These glorious things will come to pass after the second advent, but not before. If words mean anything, these verses show us that the earth will be found to be full of wickedness and wilderness in the day of Christ appearing. The unbelievers and the unconverted will be numerous. The believers and the godly, as in the days of Noah and Lot, will be found to be few, end quote. So, you know, I wish I could tell you something fun about this text, but it's not very fun, is it? I think uh, the greatest part of this text is if you feel like Lot in this world, know that uh, everything that needs to happen before Jesus to return has happened and we should live every day expecting him to come at any time. If you don't know Christ, you should be quick to turn to Christ and to realize that You shouldn't be acting like the people of Noah's day who just rejected his persistent warnings. When you live in a world where there's churches, where there's Bibles, where you will give you one if you can't afford one. There's one in the pew. You could even steal it. I give you permission. Um, Where we have preaching on the radio, preaching on the Internet, libraries full of books to tell you about these things. And all of these signs, and think of how many people in the world want nothing to do with it. You don't want to be like that. You don't want to be like Lot's sons-in-laws who, when he ran to them and said, Hey, you've got to get out of here, man. You are in danger to think they're kidding. It's not a kidding passage. It's a scary passage. It's not a very fun passage to preach because... You know, if we were living in a a wonderful age where it wasn't like it is today, you could think, well, at least it must be in the future. But that's not the case. Our society is just like the days of Noah and Lot. So may we who are believers do our best to engage the culture with the gospel. Tell them about Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, so that God may harvest those who he may harvest. And may you, if you don't know Christ, turn to him now in faith, for he died on the cross to make a way for sinners to be forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us in warning us about what it is going to be like when the days of the Son of Man begin to take effect. We look at our world and it does grieve us because we have friends and family and co-workers who don't know you and neighbors We try to talk to them. They don't want to hear it. Try to share the gospel. They think we're jesting. May you have mercy. May you cause a revival around the world that will postpone your coming for a thousand years or more. But Father, if that is not to happen and things proceed from bad to worse, may we not just sit idly by and watch people perish, but do something about it. May we be generous and give to your causes. May we be diligent to pray. May we be faithful to open our mouth. And Father, if there is any here who don't know you, may they cry out right now and say, Lord Jesus, save me. I am a sinner. I know I deserve judgment. I believe you died on the cross for me. That You were buried and rose again the third day. I trust you to save me. 
Save me, Lord, or else I die. And Father, I pray that you would answer that prayer, that people might come to know you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.